A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I won't let my body outweigh, outweigh everything that I'm made of. Won't spend my life trying to change. I'm learning to love who I am. I am strong, I feel free. I know every part of me is beautiful, and I will always outweigh. If you feel it, put your hands in the air. Show some love to the mirror while you're there. Let's take it one day at a time, because you and I outweigh. Okay, so today Lisa and I are excited to be joined by Jess Springle, which on Instagram, she is at The Cranky Therapist. And I started following you maybe a couple of months ago. And I have to say, you've been a great addition to my feed because I love just how (laughs) real and authentic you are and just ways that you want to really connect with people and help them out. And it's weird to see a therapist. I don't, maybe weird's not the right word because I think it's actually awesome. I guess I should say it's different to see a therapist in this type of light, but I think you do a really good job at it. And just to give your Instagram bio, you're an eating disorder counselor. You love radical authenticity always, joy and liberation for all people all bodies, and people can also find you on TikTok. (laughs) I love that. And you're the meme queen, I believe. People know you for your hilarious memes, which had me peeing in my pants yesterday as I looked (laughs) through your account. I feel like you're definitely a great safe 
follow for people. And if anybody wants to join you on your journey online, Lisa and I highly recommend it. Well, I am honored. What a, what a sell. Thank you. Uh, but yes, the, I think the memes are a lot of why people come and the authenticity and just sometimes ridiculous authenticity and humor is a lot of why people stay, or at least that's what I've been told. Yeah. And, you know, I said you're a safe follow because, you know, I think we're all in this place where we're evaluating the content we're bringing in. There's so much out there. We can be inundated left and right on all these different platforms. You know, you almost can't even escape it sometimes because there's just so much there. But you do have to take inventory of who you're following at times. And sometimes you need a clean house. So I say you're safe in that I can tell uh, the content you put out, a lot of thought went into it. You want to make sure that, yes, you're uh, serving all types of people, not um, triggering anybody. And so that's something that we have to be aware of. Let's just use like on Instagram or TikTok, whoever we're following, like what are some things that you think people need to look out for when they're following certain accounts? Like if they start to see certain things pop up that are red flags of like, "Mm, maybe this could be triggering and I shouldn't be following this person anymore. That is such a good question. And, and I appreciate you saying that it looks like a lot of thought goes into my account because a lot of thought does. And I try to be very intentional with what I post, which, you know, sometimes people who comment or slide into my DMs yelling at me uh, don't recognize, unfortunately. But, you know, you're going to make everybody angry on the internet at some point. But You know, something that I often will share with clients is even if the content that someone is sharing is not necessarily triggering objectively, I encourage them to ask themselves, is this triggering for me? You know, is this something that brings up something in me that isn't great? Or, you know, if I'm having a really particular feeling about this, I encourage them to bring it to session and we can talk about it. Like, why is this bringing this up? Or what, what about what this person is saying is really evoking this sort of response. But from a more, I guess, global perspective, like certain things to look out for, especially in today's world. And especially like in my little subset of the internet, where there's a lot of, you know, body acceptance, body positivity, trying to really approach weight stigma in a different way, um, eradicate fat phobia, et cetera. I think something really to look out for is that people who are selling something that they really should not be selling. If you're following an account that is intended to be about potty positivity, and then the next breath, they're selling some sort of laxative tea or weight loss supplement, like perhaps that's a red flag. I'd say that's a pretty big red flag. There are more covert ones. There's a lot of nuance and it's hard to pick up sometimes, but really if someone is saying something that flies in the face of what it seems like they're usually saying, that's usually a red flag. What is the whole before and after a meal fad thing that's happening on TikTok and Instagram? Can you tell us about that? Yeah. It's so funny because I did that article for Vice. And then after that, it seemed like I just stopped seeing those videos. I was like, I don't know if it's me. Like maybe I got blocked by people. <laughs> I don't know. But I think there, there was like this wash for a time of people posting videos of them in a night, like a really cute outfit or something before they ate and then posting a video of themselves after they ate. And there was like, you know, a, a shift or a change in their body. Depending on who you were looking at, it could be like a pretty significant change versus like a minute one. And it was like, why are you posting this? But it seemed like there was a lot of that going around for a while. And it's pretty problematic. Well, it's interesting because that's how I found you originally through the Vice article. And Amy found you separately on social media. And together we were like, let's have her on. But 
I've seen these before and afters as well. And I even admit that while I've never done that exactly, I've also contributed to that conversation in the past and can now see how it was problematic in some ways. However, when you go to these pages, you see tons of comments from people saying, thank you so much for sharing this. You know, I thought I was the only one that looks like this after I eat. So it's really hard to understand, especially as the content creator, how it could be problematic because you're not seeing the people who it's possibly harming. So who is it harming and why? Yeah, that's and that's a good point. I think especially on the TikTok accounts I'm thinking of that have posted things like this, there is just a barrage of comments that are positive and pr- like heaping praise upon this, these people. I mean, ultimately, who it hurts the most are people who are marginalized. So and in this situation, I think people who are in bodies that don't fit the norm. Granted, I think these videos are trying to portray that like, hey, look, my body isn't actually the norm sometimes. But it's like, even if the person is posting this video after they've eaten and they look bloated, it's like your body is still the norm. Or, you know, I shouldn't say norm, like the ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, or just, you know, a body that has a lot of privilege. So it typically a thin white cis person. So, you know, I think folks who live in larger bodies or are, you know, look like that all the time or are bigger than that person looks after they've eaten, that's who it's usually the most harmful to. But I read in your article, I would think that people in eating disorder recovery might find this helpful, actually, but they're having a different reaction, it sounds like, to it at certain times. I think it could be a little bit of both. It's like almost an annoyingly nuanced conversation because like in the eating disorder, eating disorder recovery world, you know, I'll hear in response to these videos, like, oh, absolutely not. If this is what's going to happen when I eat, I'm not doing that. Even if it's a micro change in the person's body, right. what they're seeing is a micro change and they're afraid of it. Right. They're terrified of it. Granted, I think that's like, I don't want to say it's a very particular type of person with eating disorder, but it's often, it's often people who are underweight or their weight has been dramatically impacted by their eating disorder to the point where they are then underweight. So of course, like a change in the other direction is terrifying to them. Granted, I think any person with an eating disorder, most of the time, if there's a shift in weight, it's pretty terrifying to them, regardless of size. But I hear most the absolutely not from folks who are underweight. Got it. And this idea of kind of, you know, checking your body before and after a meal is one that, Amy, I don't know if you're familiar with this practice, but for me, it was a big part of my disordered eating that didn't have a name at the time. Uh, Before and after eating, as well as every morning, you know, I'd go up to the mirror, look to see what's happening and just obsessively no, the term I use now is body check. But for somebody who's maybe never heard that term before, what is body checking? So I think body checking is is very individual to every person that struggles with it. And it can look pretty different depending, but I think like a more general definition is like looking and scrutinizing your body in such a way um, to evaluate if there has been any change, either negative or positive. And this is usually done in an attempt to either soothe anxiety or quote unquote, motivate 
further negative behavior with food or exercise or to actually like feel some type of like positivity towards one's body because it now like looks a particular way. Mm. So this can range anywhere from like standing in front of the mirror and just looking at your stomach with your shirt pulled up to creating these TikToks to not even consciously like grabbing certain parts of your body throughout the day to like check on it so to speak. Um, So it definitely has a pretty wide range of behaviors that it encompasses and a lot of reasons for the behaviors. It was just such a big part of of my disordered eating. And I'm sure if I had TikTok, I would be one of those TikTokers that as I made my way through disordered eating and kind of, you know, made jokes about having food babies and was more quote unquote comfortable with the changes that my body would go through on a regular fluctuating basis, I was still obsessive about the checking. Oh, this is what I look like after a meal. Like I'm bloated. I'm okay that I'm bloated, but I'm, but I'm, you know, but I'm aware. But I'm, but I'm hyper aware. I'd even go a little yeah. bit of a, a step further here. At what point would we say that it, that is problematic? It's interesting because even the, you know, the term food baby just mm-hmm. like triggered a thought for me because I know even in eating disorder treatment, because like thinking back to my own experiences in eating disorder treatment, that was like a constant complaint from clients. And it is problematic, of course. Obviously, in that setting, it's like you kind of expect that people are going to be hyper aware of their bodies. But it's interesting because I think that mirrors a lot of what we just see in regular life, where people are very often talking about how full they feel or just like, oh, my pants are too tight or, you know, fill in the blank. And it's so normalized at this point in our culture that it is really challenging to kind of untangle it. It's like, okay, when is it problematic? It's like, it's always problematic, really, I think. It's just become, well, it's what everyone seems to be doing and thinking. So I guess it's not so problematic, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I know that like for me, I wouldn't call this a trigger because, well, maybe it's a trigger. You could tell me if it's a trigger. It would never cause action in me, but it stirs an emotion. So I don't know if perhaps that's a trigger, but I follow somebody I love on Instagram, like love everything she has to say. Um, she's not in, you know, our space of this kind of conversation. And she seems to have a really healthy relationship to food. And after eating a meal, she posted on her story, like her pants unbuttoned a sign of a good meal is what she wrote. It stirred it in me because, well, I'm not sure why, because, but if again, it felt like something I would do in the past and maybe it brought back that hyper awareness of my body that I used to have to the point where I would even document that I have to unbutton my pants and show it right. to the world, you know? <laughs> right. And that, that would be my question. Although I think, you know, thinking about Instagram now and just the influencer sphere, it's like, if you're not documenting, the algorithm doesn't like you. If you're not like posting all the time about XYZ things, it's like your stuff might not show up. So I understand that like sentiment of needing to document everything, but at the same time, it's like, okay, why did she need to share that? I think the intention, it doesn't sound disordered or negative necessarily. It sounds Mm -hmm. actually like it was nice. Like, oh, okay. And I'm sure there were plenty of people that thanked her in the same way, but then there might be other people like me who had just, it stirred a little bit of something up in. So it's, like you said, this is a nuanced conversation, but for the listener, I think the take-home point is how hyper aware of your body are you before a meal, after a meal, when you wake up, when you go to bed versus how much are you able to just exist? Yeah. And I think that's, that's a pretty big question in today's world. 
because I think especially, I mean, granted, I live in Texas where the pandemic, I feel like they've believed it's been over since it started. You know, people are making their way back out into the world in a lot of ways. And there is this hyper awareness on bodies to a degree that is really not super helpful. But at the same time, it's like, I understand why it's happening because no one's seen each other in a year. I think that that's like really cultivated a lot of like hyper awareness for folks, whether it's like awareness of their own body because they're concerned other people are looking at them and judging them or just hyper awareness of other people's bodies because things have changed. Well, I've seen an an uptick on Instagram in certain, you know, ads that are coming my way that have to do with quarantine, weight gain slash weight loss, trying to catch one's attention. In my case, it's somehow ending up in my feed. And I'm like, oh, like, it's just, it's really sad and disheartening because it's like putting the focus on like the body is the most important thing out of this whole crazy wild year that we've been through when it's just not. And my friend Mary even reposted one of the things in her stories the other day. And she got so many comments from people. Like she was just saying, she she posted in her stories a post about it. And she was like, is anybody else seeing uh, so many more ads about weight loss now that we're all kind of out and about again. And she was like, it's just so frustrating and sad. And she got so many DMs and responses of people like saying, hey, thank you for posting this and bringing awareness. Like I'm seeing them a lot more and it's making me feel really bad about myself. I think that the companies are also really taking advantage of like that really easy language of like, and this year we're going to be going back to the beach and barbecues. So you got to lose that weight, you know, which is like so gimmicky, like do something more, like use your brain a little bit more companies, <laughs> but <laughs> we're not, we're not seeing that. They're like just taking the low hanging fruit. I feel like. Oh, totally. Yeah. I agree. I agree with that. And I think even my account, I've gotten a bunch of diet ads or just like, you know, diet company ads, which like uh, I would say my account is pretty like significantly anti-diet and, you know, I've hidden a lot of things or just like reported ads and still I get them. So I can only imagine that like for folks who are not in my sphere, they're probably getting it 10 times as much even as I am. The last year or however long at this point, it's a lot of us survived something that we arguably might not have. And it's like capitalizing on people's fear of weight gain when we just went through something that was so traumatizing is just gross. Right. Yeah, I agree. So I love traveling and coming home to my bed because it's comfy and familiar. I love crawling into it. Well, what if you could take your bed on the road with you so that way you got good night's sleep while you're on a trip? And it's not your entire bed, but at least your bedding, which is the best part. Let me introduce you to Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding. Now, Cozy Earth is travel-friendly and hassle-free, and the bedding comes in these adorable totes, which makes it really easy for you to take it on trips with you. They also have really amazing loungewear, so if you're on a long flight, you can stay cool and comfy with Cozy Earth's temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew, and it'll add a touch of style to your travel ensemble as well. So whether you're exploring stuff near or far, take a little bit of home with you. Cozy Earth has everything you need to turn every moment into pure bliss. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code OUTWAY at checkout to get 35% off. And let them know that we sent you after you check out. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season... 
we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So this this past year of quarantine, from what I've read, rates of eating disorders went sky high, or at least rates of people getting treatment have gone sky high. I know treatment centers were waitlisted and and all of that. So business has been good for you, I guess, huh? Yes, I would say, you know, it feel I feel like guilty saying that, but I'm like, I've never been as busy as in the last 18 months. And I think mostly teens. 
that's where I get a lot of the referrals from. It's like kids ages like 12 to 18. That was where like almost 80% of my referrals were from this past year plus. And I think a lot of it is because a parents are like home with their children Mm. and like staring at them and they're like, oh, oh, this is not, something's wrong. B, there's like way more interaction. So then there's like potential for more pathology to come out. And C, I think it's just things that kids may have been able to get away with or they're just no longer able to get away with. So it's just because it kind of culminated in this big, like, I don't know, it's just like an epidemic amongst teenagers. I mean, my phone has not stopped ringing. And how are these people, the ones that you've worked with for a significant amount of time, how, how are, obviously, there, this is an individualized question, but how are people adjusting to now returning to regular life during the summer, during, you know, kind of the hardest months of dealing with your body? It's, it varies. Something I tell people is over the course of my career, I've worked with eating disorders now for about six or seven years. And at this point, you know, if I've seen... I could, I don't even know that I could put a number on it and I'm bad at math, but like for every hundred people that I've seen with an eating disorder, I've seen a hundred different eating disorders. It's just so different across the board for everybody. So, I mean, I have some, some clients who are absolutely flourishing and so excited to go back and be with people and, you know, their recoveries really took a major hit being so isolated because of the pandemic. And then I have people, of course, who, you know, going back in person is producing this like very intense anxiety and especially around their body, food, et cetera. So I think it's, I have a pretty good smattering of, of everything. Um, But I think people in general are just, people are overwhelmed. I think that's kind of the theme I've noticed most. It's people are overwhelmed. I saw Reese Witherspoon post something on Instagram. She's like, here are my tips on how, how to have the perfect summer body. And then no. you, 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 well, I know. And then you swipe, you're supposed to swipe to the next set. And it was like, step one, have a body. Oh, And then you swipe oof. to the next thing. And it was like, that's it. That's the tip. Just have a body. <laughs> there you go. Summer body. Yay, so, Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, no, I thought it was amazing to see someone, you know, with that type of following and that type of impact to be out there reminding us that, Yeah, your summer body is you, your body. Yay. Have fun. Especially after not, again, not being able to be with people, not being able to see people or go out for the last year plus. It's like, obviously it's easier said than done, but it's like, yeah, just go, go, enjoy, do something fun. Obviously be careful, but do something fun. Right. Well, thank you for helping so many people during this challenging time. Yeah. And you know, I've appreciated following you so much because as someone that is in recovery, at least that's what... I say about myself and it's fairly new to me, like year and a half to two years of feeling like really solid in that place. But again, I have to make sure that I'm surrounding myself, even in my online world with the right people and you're one of them. So I know that you're in recovery as well. What what does that look like for you or what is recovery and what is recovered? That's an excellent question. And one, interestingly, it's one I get a lot. And especially when I do podcasts, people really have a lot of questions about that particular concept. In The concept of recovered came about, I would say, I want to say like in 2011, 2009 to 2011 by Carolyn Costin. She's like a big wig in the field. Everyone gets to define their, you know, recovered or in recovery in whatever ways that they want. I will say 
just like if it's someone that really doesn't understand or if I'm just introducing myself, I'll just say like, yes, I'm a recovered clinician. But I mean, that doesn't always resonate with me because that those words, that language was not available during my process. I resonate more with I'm in long-term recovery because I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not something that I deal with in the same way that I did a decade ago. You know, it's, it's something though, like if I have a bad day, sometimes, you know, a thought will pop up where I'm like, hmm where did that come from? But I know how to manage it significantly better than I did again, a decade ago. I like the concept of long-term recovery because it reminds me, I still have to work on myself. I still have to pay attention to my thoughts. I still have to be human really, and continue to do work that moves me forward. I love that approach to recovery versus recovered. I think it's one we don't hear a lot. I I try to have this conversation with clients where I'm like, you get to decide whatever language you want to use, that's what's important. I think I am a stickler for language and, you know, any client will tell you that they're like, oh my God, Jess. Okay. I get it, but it's important. And I think how we define our own process is, is extraordinarily important. And Jess, since we're talking about your recovery, what are some things that helped you? What I often will go into this conversation saying is I have a lot of privilege and have. I didn't receive treatment for many years after I first had an eating disorder, but I still was able to receive treatment. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, I had access and that made all of the difference. You know, I was able to access a higher level of care. I was able to see a therapist and dietitian consistently. And I think too, like a lot of it was just surrounding myself with people who understood me or at least trying to find communities of people that understood me, whether that was through the internet or through school, you know, that was something that I really prioritized and also just being aggressively honest that was a big part of my recovery. I can remember there was a, a sign in a psychiatrist's office in the last treatment center I was in, and it said, honesty equals recovery. And that was just something I took and ran with because it was just something that really met, like me. I don't know. It just like clicked something in my brain where I was like, yeah, so much of having an eating disorder is just about not telling the whole truth. And even if I'm going to be honest to the point of alienating people, I almost like have to, at least in the beginning. And I think that that worked for a period of time. (laughs) Uh, I think I did alienate some people, but I was just really aggressively honest in my early recovery. I was also 20 years old. So being 20 years old and doing anything is just a disaster. So bless that little version of myself because she really, she made it. (laughs) What do you mean by alienate people? Alienate friends or family or... I got out of treatment and then went back to school, which in retrospect, I'm like, probably should have taken some more time. But, you know, I went in with the mindset of I am going to maintain and protect my recovery at all costs. If a person met me, they were going to know that I was in recovery from an eating disorder, which again, in retrospect, I would have done that differently. I, I don't think every person that met me needed to know that. I think that was a little much, but in very many ways, it acted as a buffer. Because if people knew, I couldn't go back. I had to keep going forward. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think it was a little alienating for people who were like, why do you need to tell me this very deeply, profoundly personal thing about your life? I didn't ask. Well, in a way, I feel like sometimes we do that, yes, to create like this 
accountability for ourselves. But one thing I definitely want to touch on before we wrap up is happy eating versus sad eating. So just your thoughts on emotional eating in general and how, like, I've heard you speak a little bit about emotional eating in, in some of your posts. And I think you have a really interesting approach to it. So I'd just love to hear your philosophy of how you break down emotional eating with your clients. I think I might've talked to Laura Thomas last year about this, just that all eating is emotional eating so far as I'm concerned, because human beings are emotional all the time. We're not capable really of just, I mean, unless you're a sociopath, you can't just like totally turn off your emotions. So at the end of the day, like anytime you have a meal, you're going to be emotional, whether or not you're like in touch with whatever emotion that is granted, of course, like there are times where we might behave in a certain way around food when we're happy and a way that we might behave around food when we're sad. And I think it's, it's so important to divorce judgment from it because at the end of the day, like all eating is emotional. And so much of why we've developed these like really strong beliefs around like, oh, well, eating when you're emotional is bad is because of diet culture because it's viewed, you know, someone who is restricting their intake because they're sad, no one seems to be so concerned about that. It's often that people are concerned when someone is quote unquote overeating when they're emotional, that seems to get all of the attention as something that needs to be remedied and fixed. Uh, My friend Leanne says to me often that like there's the data and then the drama. So Uh the data is that we had the cake or the cookie or whatever. And then the drama is whatever like story that we've attached to it as to why we had the cake when it's really like, why can't it just be like, I I ate cake today, data, (laughs) done. I love that. I love that so much. I'm going to use that because that's amazing. It's like, there are so many reasons why we eat and not all of them are just going to be biological. And I think we need to stop expecting that it's exclusively biological. That's something I definitely agree with you on and have, you know, tried to voice over the years too. But I think it was on that podcast where I heard you and I loved how you broke down how we are allowed as people to celebrate our birthdays with cake and festivities and happiness, we're allowed to have food. Doesn't mean that some people don't still experience anxiety, but if you generally think about have cake on your birthday, you know, that's a positive thing that you're supposed to do. But if you have cake when you're sad, you're doing the same exact thing, eating the cake. And yet, you know, that's, that comes with judgment, a lot of self-judgment. I can do better than this. I, I just thought the way you put that, like we're doing the same exact thing, but one we're allowing, cause why? And the other one we're judging. And I, it was beautiful. Thank you. Diet culture is a pretty big villain in a lot of this. And the judgment is it's pervasive because it's not only self-judgment. I think it comes from the outside too, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. There's so much noise from the outside. And unless we really take a second to be like, wait a second, stop talking like that. Stop talking about how full you are, or how stuffed you are, or how bad you are, or why your pants don't fit. You know, as we got to really call out that language, either mentally or within our communities in a way that, you know, makes somebody understand, not necessarily on the outside. But I think these are, are things that do need to change. 
Well, given that both of you are experts in this field, maybe I'll let you both answer it for people that are listening, like like me, who, you know, I I don't study this and I don't do a lot of work. And I've actually learned from both of you that it is okay to eat during all types of things that you might be feeling. And there's, yeah, there's no shame in having the cake if I'm sad, right? So, and I'm I'm grateful for that permission. And that new narrative. But if that if this is a new conversation for people, what's something that you recommend? Almost like a a new story for them to tell themselves, the new one liner thing or one sentence thing that can help them undo it. Like we have to unlearn it, which takes new practices. So say they are eating cake. This I'm just going to keep flowing with this example. They're sad and they're eating cake. What's the new? narrative that they now get to tell themselves since for so long diet culture has told them cake is bad. As much as diet culture is a, is a villain in a lot of this, I think there are also a lot of reasons why people struggle with emotional eating or just stuff with food and that's environment, family, trauma, et cetera, a million and one things. So it it's hard to really create just like a new narrative if there's all of that kind of preceding it. All of that to say, perfect world, wave a magic wand. I mean, I think a lot of it is if you're eating the cake and you're sad, it's like, well, I am eating cake and I am sad. And that is absolutely okay because cake does not have, cake does not have a special occasion. That should be a shirt. <laughs> it's like one of, I don't know. I, I don't remember where I saw it, but it was like the second part of your life begins when you realize that you can eat cake at a time that is not your birthday. And mm-hmm. I love that so much because it's true. Who's to say you can eat cake whenever you want. So as you might know, Amy, in, in my program, hunger and fullness, fork the noise, hunger and fullness, it sounds like the course is about something else, but we define hunger straight up as a motivation to eat. So I would ask somebody to say, what is your motivation to eat? If it's, I'm having a bad freaking day and this piece of cake is going to cheer me up, that's an okay motivation to eat. And really breaking down that idea that there's only one type of way that we should eat and giving yourself that radical permission to say, why? What What's going on? And is this what you're capable of right now? And will it help you right now? And for many cases, the answer to cake is yes. For many, some cases, it might be actually no, but you got to really ask that question and get through that clutter of shame and judgment and guilt in order to really find out what your need is in that exact moment. Okay. I love what you both said. And I think that, yeah, radical permission, that's what we all need to give ourselves. It's not easy for sure, but I'm, I'm thankful for y'all helping guide us. Well, thank you, Jess. Thank you for being here. We're going to put all your information in the show notes so people can check you out. I know you're based in Austin. Can you see people virtually or no? So I could see people virtually in anywhere in Texas and also in New Jersey. That's where I'm licensed. Okay, awesome. So I will put your website below as well. And thank you so much for doing the good work. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with both of you. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.